We're starting a new series today on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and our plan is to spend the next three months preaching out of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in fact, you can turn in your Bibles right now to Matthew chapter 5. If you remember last week, Brady mentioned that we'd like to get as many of you as are willing to memorize part or even all of this sermon over the next couple of months. And then on the last Sunday of November, we'll actually recite the passage. Those of you who who are willing, who have memorized and you're willing to uh, speak it up front, uh, will recite the passage from memory. So if you're interested, there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer on the bulletin board. Uh, You can choose what you memorize. You can memorize one verse or you can memorize the whole passage. It's up to you. Uh, It's also up to you whether you choose to recite it in public or if you just want to memorize it for your own discipline. But I encourage you to sign up after the service. Some of you might remember we did preach on this passage, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, back in 2015, but that was seven years ago. That was a long time ago. This sermon is such a profound teaching from Jesus, that our leadership thought that it would be wise to preach through it again. So let me pray before we begin. Lord God, your word is perfect. This very first public sermon that Jesus gave during his ministry on earth, the words are profound, they are perfect. Lord, speak through this imperfect and flawed mouth that the truth of your precious word may be brought fully to our congregation today. I pray in your son's name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of uh, several major discourses or teachings that Jesus gave in his public ministry. He gave five of them, and this very first one takes place early on in Jesus' ministry. So his words in this sermon would be the very first time that many of his listeners actually heard Jesus speak. And in this message... Jesus turns the whole order of things upside down for the people. All that these people had ever been taught by the religious leaders, everything they knew about how to have a relationship with God, Jesus essentially pulls the rug out from under them and says, you guys don't know the half of it. You think it's the people who are spiritually rich who enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's not. It's the poor in spirit. You think it's those who are clearly religious, but it's the meek. You think that righteous people go to heaven, but it's those who see their unrighteousness. These are the ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then from there, Jesus goes on in these next several chapters in Matthew to show us that God's standards are actually much tougher to keep than even the Pharisees realized. The Pharisees were legalists to the core. All they did was preach rules to the people. But with every rule, they also had exceptions. Don't murder, but it's okay to hate. Don't lust, or don't, I'm sorry, don't commit adultery. It's okay to lust. Don't lie, unless, of course, your oath wasn't all that serious. And Jesus, in these next several chapters, he revolutionizes God's word to the people. He does not do away with God's law. He affirms God's moral law. But he teaches, he goes beyond that to teach the intent behind it, which is love, purity, covenant. 
This is a completely different teaching on the Old Testament than these people had heard. We sometimes think of the Sermon on the Mount as this beautiful, comforting passage. But if you go home and read Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the words beautiful and comforting probably will not come to your mind. The words hard, impossible, frustrating, those might come to your mind because in this sermon, Jesus shows us just how impossibly perfect God's standards are. They're unachievable. There are no legalistic exceptions to God's standards, which is Jesus' point. God is righteous. His rules are perfect, and we are not. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, is to show us that we fail to live up to God's standards. We need to look outside of ourselves for righteousness because we don't have it. But the Sermon on the Mount, it also gives us hope because the one who, is, the one who would fulfill God's law on our behalf has finally come. So Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with a series of blessings We know them as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is simply the Latin word for blessing. Let's read these blessings in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 is going to be our passage today. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before getting into the blessings, Matthew first describes the scene in these first couple of verses. Matthew paints a picture for his Jewish audience that would bring up uh, this Old Testament imagery of Moses going up on the mountain to hear from God. And likewise, Jesus in verse 1, he went up on the mountain, Matthew says. But unlike Moses, he did not go up to hear from God. He went up to speak as God. Verse 2 says, he opened his mouth and taught them. That phrase, he opened his mouth, that was a common Jewish phrase that was used when something profound was about to be heard. Jesus opened his mouth. In other words, what was about to come out of his mouth is so profound that it will forever change the way that the people approach God. No longer can they attempt to approach God with their good works. No longer can they put any confidence in their own actions. Their obedience to the law will never be good enough. Their outward attempts at gaining the kingdom of heaven, will not help them. But Jesus tells them what will help them. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says in verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Greek word here for blessed in all these verses, it means not just blessed, it means happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. What a bizarre thing to say. Not blessed are those who are spiritual. Jesus didn't say blessed are those who follow all the rules. He said blessed are those who realize they can't. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the word here used for poor describes a condition that is truly poor. It's those who are impoverished, bankrupt. They have nothing. And so Jesus is saying, happy are those who are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing, not even a crumb to offer God. Completely different message from what these people have been hearing all their lives. The poor in spirit have an acute awareness that they have a great need. And they cannot satisfy that need by themselves. They're not right in the eyes of a holy God. They need help. They need Jesus. Most of us in here are Christians. And as Christians, I think we would all agree that Jesus is all we need, right? We don't need a new car. We don't need another vaccine. We don't need another TikTok video. Jesus is all we need. Even though we spend most of our time consumed with everything else that we claim we don't need. Jesus is not simply all you need. Jesus is all you have. You and I have nothing else. Someday we will die. Someday all our stuff will be gone. Someday everything we've ever done will be forgotten. And Jesus is all you have. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who know that Jesus is not simply all they need. Jesus is all they have. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, what's that? It's a kingdom like no other. Every other kingdom out there is temporary. The kingdom of heaven is eternal. Every other kingdom is dependent upon you, your pedigree, your abilities. The greater you are, the greater the kingdom you enjoy. It doesn't matter what kingdom we're talking about here. Career, sports, financial, political. The kingdoms of this world are always biased toward the achievers. The more you do, the more you get. That is not the kingdom of heaven. There is no pecking order. Every person in the kingdom of heaven will be in the very presence of our God. All will be heirs of the kingdom. All will be the bride of Christ. If you're a religious person, if you take pride in your accomplishments for God, you're spiritually rich, this is not your kingdom. But for the poor in spirit, for those who know that your accomplishments mean nothing, in that Jesus is all you have, happy are you. 
For yours is not just a piece of land far off in the distance. Yours is the infinite riches, the immeasurable wealth, the unending joy in the very presence of the king. That is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are those who mourn. The word used here is the strongest of all the Greek words to describe mourning. It's not just to be sad. It is to be devastated, to wail with grief that stabs the heart. Like the prophet Isaiah when he had his vision of God in heaven and he said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah saw the holiness of God and he mourned over his sin. One of the characteristics of believers is not necessarily that we sin less than other people. I know a lot of non-Christians who live very good lives. They're good parents, good workers. They have good morals. Some unbelievers could teach us a thing or two about moral living. But a distinguishing mark of a believer is that he sees his sin. He has an awareness of his sin and he hates his sin because he knows that his father in heaven is perfectly holy and as a child of God, he wants to emulate his father and so he mourns over his sin. The fourth century church father, Chrysostom, he said, sorrow is given us on purpose to cure us of sin. You see, our sorrow over our sin is a gift from God to bring us to repentance and restoration. Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. And Jesus told us, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You ever notice that it's sometimes the most godly people who are the most broken over their sin? When was the last time you were broken over your sin? When was the last time you wept over your sin? Some of you in here today are in deliberate sin whether it's sexual sin or you're cheating your employer or whatever the case may be. In your sin, maybe it used to bother you, but not anymore. You've gotten comfortable with it. We like our sin. Some of you think you're doing just fine. You're not in any sort of terrible sin. You're just a little self-righteous. You're just a jerk to your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents. It may not be any terrible sin, but you're spiritually cold. Blessed are those who mourn. I go through this cycle often in my life. I have times when I'm pretty comfortable with my sin. I don't mourn over it. I look forward to it. But God never seems to let me stay there. He brings me to my knees over his holiness 
and my sinfulness. And I can't understand how the God of the universe could choose to love and forgive me. I fight God for control of my life. And what did he do in response? He crushed his son on our behalf. These are the times that I weep over my sin. And I long for God to kill off my flesh and free me from it. These are some of my best moments with God. I am most satisfied, most comforted, most happy during these tearful prayers of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word comforted comes from the same Greek word that is used for the Holy Spirit. Jesus often referred to the Holy Spirit as the comforter. And the comfort we receive when we mourn, it's not just emotional, it's spiritual. The greater the mourning over our sin, the greater the happiness we have over the grace of Jesus. And the more we put all our hope in Jesus, because he is not just all we need, he's all we have. So happy are we when we mourn over anything that pulls us away from Jesus. Do you mourn over your sin? Do you hate your sin? Do you long to be freed from your flesh? If you do, happy are you. For you have the comforter dwelling inside you and you will be comforted. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus here is quoting Psalm 37, which says, The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The word used here for meek is used three other times in the New Testament, and all three times it's used to mean gentle. Happy are the gentle. That's a tough one for me. Because the people who most need me to be gentle in their lives, Suzanne and my kids, they're often the ones who get the opposite out of me. Harshness, impatience. Then I have to go back to the previous beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. Jesus was meek. But not in the way that the world defines it. The world defines meekness as wimpiness. Jesus was not a wimp. He wasn't weak. He wasn't timid. He wasn't shy. He didn't ride around in Galilee on a hybrid electric camel because he was scared of offending those in charge. Jesus was strong. He was tough. He's the one who drove out all the money changers in the temple twice. He made a whip and put the fear of God into the people as he cleaned out the temple, once at the beginning of his ministry and then the second time just prior to his crucifixion. He stood up to the religious leaders constantly and he went off to his death boldly. Jesus was tough and Jesus was meek. He was gentle. 
He said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Same word as meek. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus, gentle and lowly in heart. Are you gentle? Blessed are the meek. Are you gentle in how you handle the people that God has put in your life? If you're not sure, ask them. They'll tell you. Happy are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who have come to Jesus to receive their rest, who seek his gentleness and seek to display his gentleness in their own lives, for they shall inherit the very thing that they've chosen not to live for. The earth. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The word here for hunger means to be starving, it's to be famished, to crave. Happy are those who are starving for righteousness. Blessed are those who realize that even their best deeds, their greatest acts, even their sincerest prayers are stained with sin and pride and they crave true, pure righteousness. Jesus did not say, blessed are those who are righteous because no one is. Jesus said, blessed are those who realize they are not righteous and they crave it. We often view righteousness as more of a supplement than a need. It's a spiritual vitamin. We can do fine without it, but it would be better if we took it. Righteousness is not a supplement. It's an essential need, like food and water, which is why Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who crave righteousness that cannot be found within themselves. The righteousness that Jesus freely offers. For they shall be satisfied. The word for satisfied here means to be filled, to be stuffed. It's to feast in the presence of the righteous one. Are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Or do you feel pretty full already? That's a dangerous place to be because you can die of starvation and never even realize your need. You don't need to be righteous. You need to see your complete lack of righteousness and hunger and thirst for Jesus to give you his As Christians, God has justified us. To be justified is to be declared righteous. So God has declared us to be righteous based upon the work of Christ on our behalf. So if you're a Christian, you are already positionally righteous. In other words, your position before God is righteous. You're positionally righteous. But you are not yet actually righteous. 
You and I still wrestle with our sinful flesh. In eternity, we won't. We will be fully righteous, which means even our desires will be good. In eternity, we will be set free from our sinful desires. We simply won't have them. We will only desire that which is good, that which is righteous. We will stuff ourselves with fruit from the tree of life. We will drink at will from the bottomless well of living water. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus here is echoing Psalm 18, which says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. I love the fact that God is merciful. I love God's mercy because without it, I'm hopeless. But am I merciful? Are you merciful? We can shout for joy over God's mercy all day long, but if we're not changed by it, if we're not merciful ourselves, then we are just like the Pharisees, hypocrites. I love God's mercy. I just won't show it to you. But if we realize the extent of God's mercy to us, if we realize the endlessness of our sins, then we won't look down on others for their sin, but we'll be compassionate. We'll be merciful. You know, Jesus was merciful to all who sought mercy, without exception. Everyone who sought mercy got it from Jesus. But he showed no mercy, no compassion to the religious, to the ones who thought that they didn't need his mercy. If you need mercy, Jesus has an unlimited supply for you. But if you don't show mercy, could it be that you've forgotten his? Or you've never experienced his? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus here is speaking from Psalm 24, where David wrote, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The Pharisees taught people to be pure on the outside. It's good that the outside looks good. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They looked great on the outside. In the inside, they were full of dead man's bones. Jesus taught us to be pure On the inside, blessed are the pure in heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the source of our motives, our ambitions, our desires. The heart is the source of all that we desire. 
And the problem is that our hearts are easily deceived. This is why Jesus did not say, blessed are those who follow their hearts. The Bible never tells us to follow our hearts because when we do follow our heart, we often make a mess of our lives. We destroy relationships. We end up in debt. We end up addicted because we followed that which was prone to wander. The Bible tells us to guard our hearts, not to follow our hearts. Jesus here says, blessed are the pure in heart. Is your heart pure? If you think it is, chances are it's not. In other words, your heart is most pure when it's most aware of its weakness, its deceitfulness. J.C. Ryle wrote, A holy man will follow after humility. He will see more evil in his own heart than in any other in the world. Blessed are the pure in heart. Happy are those who pray like David. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Happy are those who don't follow their heart, but instead they guard their heart and they constantly seek cleansing from the one ingredient that can purify our hearts, the blood of Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happy are the peacemakers, those who in their everyday lives seek not to start an argument, but to resolve an argument. Happy are those who are quick to forgive. Happy are those who don't hold a grudge. Happy are those who love their enemies. Paul wrote in the 12th chapter of Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are you a peacemaker? How would your spouse answer that question for you? How would your friends answer that question for you? Blessed are those who have experienced peace with God and who seek to be instruments of peace in this world, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God alongside the Son of God who is crucified on our behalf to be our peacemaker so that we might have peace with our Heavenly Father. This brings us to verses 10 through 12, the final blessing. This final blessing is the inevitable result for one whose character has been transformed from the inside out by our Savior. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we as Christians adhere to the teachings of Jesus, teachings like this Sermon on the Mount that are completely contrary to both what religion teaches and what the world teaches, we can expect persecution. 
When we insist that mankind is dead in their sin, enslaved in their sin, and that goodness and righteousness lie not within ourselves, but only in our Savior, we can expect persecution. When they insist that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, we can expect persecution. And when we refuse to call evil good and good evil, we can expect persecution. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he comes full circle then, back to the original promise from his first beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you when the world hates you and persecutes you, and lies about you. It's a much safer place to be spiritually than when the world loves you. Charles Spurgeon said, Christians are not so much in danger when they're persecuted as when they are admired. Because when we're admired by the world, we tend to admire the world back. But persecution, when it's for righteousness' sake, has an amazing way of turning our admiration back to our Savior. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are Jesus' opening words in his very first public sermon. They must have been tough to hear for the people because they're so contrary to the thinking that they had heard prior to this. They're contrary to our thinking. Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, realizing our need for righteousness. These sound like a recipe for misery, not happiness. But Jesus turns our logic upside down. He tells us that it is this very understanding of our spiritual condition that is the key to happiness. In his teachings on this Sermon on the Mount, they get even tougher the further we get into them in these next couple of months. As Jesus addresses very practical topics that we're going to look at. Topics like anger, lust, divorce, Keeping your word, loving others, retaliation, giving, praying, fasting, spending, anxiety, judging others, discerning false teaching. These are some of the things that Jesus Jesus addresses in this Sermon on the Mount. And his message in all of these is not be good. It's way more than that. His message is be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's a message that will do one of two things. It will either drive you to despair or it will drive you to the cross. The Sermon on the Mount will either drive you to despair as you see the impossibility of ever having a chance of being right with God. Or it will drive you to the cross as you shift your hope from yourself over to the one who came to do the impossible on your behalf. That's why Jesus started his teaching with these blessings that we looked at today. 
Because even in our failure, there is hope in him. Jesus was poor on our behalf. Jesus mourned on our behalf. Jesus was meek. Jesus offers to fill us with his righteousness. Jesus was merciful. Jesus was pure in heart. Jesus suffered tremendous violence and death so that he could be our peacemaker. The only innocent man ever to walk the earth was persecuted for righteousness' sake, for our sake. So as we go through this series, let it drive you to repentance, not despair. Let it drive you to the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdoms here on this earth. Let it drive you to seek the righteousness that you don't have in the one who does. Let it remind you that Jesus is not just all you need. He's all you have. Let the Sermon on the Mount drive you to the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are perfect. Your standards are perfect, and how beautiful is that? That you are not a God of compromise, a God of changing, shifting standards. They are perfect. They are unchanging. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for your son who made the impossible possible. I am not perfect. I am deeply flawed. And yet you call me righteous because of Christ. Thank you. Thank you that you do that for all your children. I ask for those in who, here who are not yet your children, that you would draw them to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that they don't have, that your son freely offers. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.